thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Morning. Morning, how are you? Oh, I'm pretty good, thank you. How are you? I am okay, thank you. Um, I understand that you want to talk to us about first fossilized brain from a dinosaur this morning. Yes, well, it's very exciting, this, because uh, it's actually a, a UK discovery. And for the first time, scientists have discovered the fossilized remains of a dinosaur's brain from about 133 million years ago. This was an iguanodon, which would have been roaming around on what is now the south coast of England. And no one realized what they'd found. An amateur fossil hunter called Jamie Hiscox picked up an interesting pebble that he thought looked a bit special, but he wasn't sure quite what it was, until, that was in 2004, he showed it in 2009 to academics at Oxford University, and Martin Brazier, who unfortunately now has died, he saw the potential in this fossil, and together with researchers in Australia at the University of Western Australia and also the Natural History Museum in London, they scanned this about 10 centimetre by 6 centimetre long pebble, and they realised it is the cast of this iguanodon's brain. And the level of detail that's visible in here is absolutely staggering because you can see what are called the meninges. These are the layers that surround the brain in all of us. We have these thin layers, that's where we get the word meningitis from. And through the meninges run blood vessels, those are visible in these fossils too. And then underneath those meninges and blood vessels are the brain surfaces and that's visible as well. So no one's ever seen anything quite like this. We've had what are called endocasts of the insides of the skull case in many animals before, but never the preservation of the brain tissue itself in this sort of state. And so the researchers are saying there's a number of interesting things we can learn from this. And one of them is that this group of dinosaurs, now this iguanodon would have been between four and five metres long. It was roughly half its adult size. This uh, dinosaur may have had a much bigger brain relative to its body size than we had formerly credited dinosaurs as having because most of our ideas about dinosaurs' brain size is based on looking at crocodiles, which are their closest living descendant alongside birds. Now, in crocodiles, most of the brain case is actually full of tissue and these meninges and blood vessels and things, and the brain occupies less than 50% of the space that it could. But in this iguanodon, the brain matter extends right out to the margin of the brain case. And this suggests two things. One, either that they did have much bigger brains and were therefore perhaps more social, they were better at operating with other animals and being overall more intelligent than other dinosaurs and crocodiles, or it's what we call an artefact of the way in which the specimen has preserved itself. What the researchers think happened is that when this animal died, it would have been roaming around on what, um, what was a seasonal wetland. And there were lots of trees there, forest fires quite frequently. This animal would have died and then fallen into this very acidic, wet silt. And we think it landed with its head upside down. 
and this would have meant the brain would have flopped down inside the skull, but then it would have been inundated with this very acidic, very low oxygen mud that was also rich in phosphate and carbonate, and that's what led to the, the staggering level of preservation. So an interesting theory, but overall a beautiful discovery. Wonderful. Wow. Amazing. We have John in Randbeck on the line. Uh, John, what questions do you have for Dr. Chris? Uh, thank you for taking my call. Hello, Chris. Hello, John. Um, um, Chris, I just wanted to ask, my, my eight-year-old son would like an answer to a question if you can help. What would happen to us as humans, our infrastructure we've built on the planet, and that sort of thing, if the planet stopped spinning? So from a magnetic field perspective, from a gravitational perspective, would we simply fall off, or what would be the, what would be the scenario? What's your son's name? My son's name's Joshua. Uh, well, hello, Joshua. Uh, the answer is that uh, luckily the Earth isn't going to stop spinning anytime soon, although the Earth is slowing down a little bit. Uh, in fact, it's slowing down at the rate of about two milliseconds of day length every hundred years. Uh, that means it's going to take a very long time before the planet does come to a standstill. The reason it's slowing down is because we are giving energy away to the moon uh, owing to the effects of the tides. But the, fa the mere fact that everything is spinning at the moment means everything has momentum. Well, if everything just slowed down and came to a gentle stop, then that wouldn't be a problem because everything would still sit there on the surface of the Earth. But it would make the Earth a less hospitable place than it is at the moment because by spinning round and showing one side to the sun for half the day and the other side to the sun on the other half the day, that has a stabilising effect on temperature and so on. And so it makes the Earth have the environment and the conditions, the temperature that it does. And were we to disrupt that, then obviously it would be much less hospitable for us and many other species. But there wouldn't be some sudden catastrophic change if we slowed down slowly. If we came to a sudden stop, then that would obviously be a lot different because things like the atmosphere, things like buildings, everything on the surface of the Earth, which wasn't firmly anchored down, would have momentum and would therefore try to carry on through the effects of inertia. So hopefully that's not going to happen. Um, next up, uh, we have Sando from Yaskay Park. Hello, Sando. Do you have Hello. a question for, for Chris? Morning. Morning. Hello. Morning. Uh, I would like to find out uh, if I say I'm 16 years old, right? And I'm not. So anyone, anywhere to find out my real age. Yeah, we actually had, um, th this is a very good question, because someone in South Africa asked me about five or six years ago, can I carbon date my gran? And the reason they wrote to me and asked me that is because their, their grandma, they felt, was probably over 100 years old, and she couldn't remember or didn't know exactly when she was born, because she was born at a time when people didn't worry so much about dates. And they wanted to know, and the question was, is there a way of accurately working out how old someone really is? And the answer is that you can, because there are some tissues in the body which are very long-lived. In other words, the tissues that you, bought, you are born with are the ones you die with. And so you can, to a certain extent, use carbon dating to look at some of these long-lived, lifelong persisting cells and tissues in your body to date your age. And scientists did this recently, actually, on some marine specimens. I don't know if you um, heard the, the thing we covered, uh, one of the longest-lived whales on Earth. We said that um, researchers had got the eye lenses from whales and sharks up in uh, the north of the planet, and they had found some sharks that appeared to be 500 years old, and they did it by looking at the proteins in the 
in the crystal the crystalline proteins in the eye lens so there are tissues that you can look at that you can carbon date and then you can work out with reasonable reasonable precision and accuracy how old someone is but there's going to be noise there's going to be some uncertainty so you won't get it to within the you know down to months but you might get it to within plus or minus a few years Thank you, Chris. Chris, I have my own question. Um, I heard the other day that the best way to stop a panic attack is if you count out of sequence. And I was wondering what causes that. Are you having a panic attack now? I hope not. I hope I'm not no. scaring the life out of you. <laughs> it is coming to mind, though. But uh, I was just wondering. Well, well, for people who don't know what a panic attack is, I've just explained. Um, because it's very frightening when it happens, and all of a sudden you feel absolutely terrified and you become conscious of the fact that your heart's beating too quickly uh, you're breathing very quickly you can't catch your breath you feel faint and dizzy you get pins and needles up and down your arms and you can't think straight and actually the reason this happens is entirely of your own making because what tends to happen is something makes a person a bit nervous so they tend to breathe a bit faster and because they breathe a bit faster they start to lose carbon dioxide from their lungs because when you breathe fast normally you breathe at the rate at which you produce carbon dioxide so your carbon dioxide level in your blood stays roughly the same when you increase your breathing rate and you don't need to because you're nervous you blow out this carbon dioxide rob your body of co2 and that makes your blood become a bit more alkaline than it would do normally and this makes you feel a bit woozy and dizzy and this makes a person then think gosh i think i'm going to faint or i feel terribly nervous and this then leads to the production of adrenaline from your adrenal glands which goes surging around your bloodstream and visits every tissue in your body stimulating it because adrenaline does that and this means that you then get a very fast heart rate your blood pressure tends to go up you breathe even more heavily and that exacerbates all of the symptoms and then you also get dilatation of your uh, pupils so your eye pupils get big and then the world becomes a bit blurrier than it should and this adds to the panic and then you end up with an intensification of all the symptoms and you're convinced you're going to die now this is all of your own making and the the best advice i've seen that, that psychiatrists or other doctors give to patients to help them to break the cycle of this happening is is to look for the trigger when does this tend to happen and then say to yourself well why why is this happening well i know it's happening because i am getting nervous and i'm making too much adrenaline in my bloodstream and that is making all these things happen and if you talk yourself through what's happening and explain it to yourself as it's happening and say well in a minute I'm going to probably feel a little bit woozy and I might get some pins and needles in my fingers, but that's just because of adrenaline, so I don't really need to worry about this. Actually, what will happen is after the second or third time, it, it just loses its power. And you, because you're anticipating the problem, you don't panic about it anymore. And because you don't panic about it anymore, it doesn't intensify and wind up the way it used to. So the symptoms actually melt away. And if you talk someone through like that when they're having one of these panic attacks, it doesn't take very long and then they never come back. Wow, thanks for the explanation. Like, certainly I'm not having anything like that at the moment. <laughs> so well, that's a relief. It would be hard yes. to present the radio programme while, while simultaneously suffering from an intense panic attack. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, please keep the calls coming. We are with the Naked Scientist. If you have any questions for him, please keep calling. The number 021-446-0567 or 011-883-0702 in Joburg. SMS line three one five six seven or three one seven zero two. 
Online right now, we've got um, Andre from Pretoria. Andre, welcome. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, 702. Morning. Morning. Uh, polymyalgia rheumatica. According to the internet, it comes. The doctors, they don't know how it comes. And then if it goes, it goes away after two years or something. They don't know how it comes. But mine is now for eight years. I treat it with a little bit of cortisone. 10 to 15 milligrams a day. I would like your opinion about it, please. Yes, it's a, it's a, a very debilitating addition. PMR or polymyalgia rheumatica comes on often as, as people get a bit older. It comes on abruptly for no reason. We don't know the cause, but there may be a genetic factor. There may be an environmental factor. In other words, it could be a combination of your family history and your genetic makeup with some kind of environmental trigger. Most people who have this will say that they get intense stiffness and discomfort in some muscles or things like shoulders and so on. And it usually lasts for more than 45 minutes in the morning and takes a while to warm up and ease up. And it and it, it can't really be explained why it happens. And then it'll last for a period of time, a couple of years, and then it disappears. There's a range of different reasons or, or ways of managing it. People try anti-inflammatories, they try physiotherapy, they also sometimes try anti-inflammatories and, and um, steroid techniques to damp down the immune system. Uh, with variable success, many of these cases just go away. Uh, there's probably some kind of immune basis to this. It's probably the immune system doing something, and we don't really understand that at the moment. But uh, it is a mystery, and I wish I could offer you a simple solution. Um, I, I would certainly, if you're still having symptoms and they're ongoing symptoms, it certainly warrants thorough investigation just to make sure that nothing has been missed because sometimes something can start off uh, and appear like it's something when it first manifests, but then... Uh, after a while the history might change or there might be some other subtle change to it and uh, we realise it wasn't what we first thought it was. So often it's worth seeking another opinion or being reviewed just to make sure that uh, something else isn't going on that's being missed. Time to take a shot at break. We'll be back with you. Please keep your calls coming. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Welcome back to the show. My name is Bulalanga Makalmangewana. I'm the, your Friday stand-in for today. Keep the calls coming. We have Chris, our resident doctor, the Naked Scientist on, online. The number, of course, 021-446-0567 or 11883-0702. On the line right now, we've got Amanda from Millington. Welcome, Amanda. Hi there. Um, my question is about detoxing. Uh, there's various products on the market that promise to detox you, foot masks and supplements, or you go on a so-called juice cleanse, and then you get this headache, and the comment is, oh, that just means it work- it's working. And in my opinion, you detox by having a functioning liver and kidneys. And the, the question is, do you, can you actually detox, and is it necessary, or is this all just some cunning marketing to take advantage of gullible people? Do you want to come and present the show for me? Because you're better at it than me. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, I couldn't put it better myself. Um, you know, we've evolved over millions of years. The liver is one of our biggest internal organs, if not the biggest internal organ. It's exceptional at breaking down nasties. And we managed for millions of years, and so do billions of other animals on the Earth's surface, without ever having to resort to a detox. Um, the body is making toxins all the time. The body is dealing with those toxins 
all the time. Oxygen is toxic and you can't live without that. Carbon dioxide is pretty toxic, but if you have too little of it, as we heard earlier, then you feel really faint and woozy. So it's all a cunning plan to make you part with your hard-earned cash. So save your money, go and do something you really do enjoy doing and spend the extra money you have left over on some decent fruit and vegetables and eat properly and that will do more for your sense of well-being and for your health than anything else you could possibly do that and then some exercise okay thank you so uh, um up next we've got sean from Johannesburg. hi hello sean hi there chris chris i'd like to know whether learned behaviors can be passed on genetically i've observed things in my children before they were old enough to and notice the environment that seemed to be uh, you know, passed on from one or other of the parents. Well, it's certainly true that you can that, what, that when we are conceived, that instructions are being passed from the parents to the child about how that body is going to put itself together, what shape and size it's ultimately destined to be, how its metabolism works, how its brain is going to wire itself up. And if you look at the animal world, birds are born with the ability to sing and to sing a song. Now, they learn that song and they, they refine their song, but they have the ability to sing, they have the ability to do lots of things, which they're never taught. And that's because it's written into the genetic instructions that they get from their parents. So there are certainly behaviours which are hard-coded into our DNA and passed into our offspring. More subtle types of behaviours, though, are learned. When we're born, we're a blank canvas, and our brain is a rough map of how it expects to work, but the brain is refined and moulded by our day-to-day experience and by education. Um, so there's, there's nothing special going on here, apart from the fact that, that the basics that get a person up and running and ready to go and have certain predestined personality traits written into them, that's there, but your life's experience is by far and away the dominant force that moulds you into the individual that you are. Okay, thank you so for your call. Chris, I have another question for you from me. Um, I was just sharing with the listeners that this morning I put my, my, my shoes the wrong way around. What would cause my brain to forget how to put my shoes the right way around? Um, probably being in a hurry, thinking, my goodness, I've got to deal with the traffic in Cape Town in order to get to the <laughs> studio on time to do a programme that I'm not familiar with and talk to some random English bloke about science. <laughs> um, and, and when we're in a rush then you devote more of your brain to worry than you do to actually what you should be doing. And when I first started ever making radio programmes, I found this was very, very obvious to me because I devote about 90% of my cognitive energy to panicking and not and trying not to panic and about 10% to what was actually coming out of my mouth. And then as I got better at it and more relaxed and I stopped panicking quite so much, um, this is about 15 years ago, so I'm, I'm much less panicked these days, I'm much cooler these days. Um, but <laughs> as, as I got better at doing things, I found that equation reversed. So you need a little bit of stress and you need a little bit of panic because it's very motivating and it makes sure you get things right because if you don't worry about things, you become complacent and then they go wrong. But too much panic, too much worry makes you make mistakes. So you need that optimum between enough stress to be motivating, but not so much that it's destructive and takes your eye off the ball. And, uh, and whilst your shoes were a good barometer of you know, where your attention was, um, it could be something else that's much more important, like not noticing that someone stepped out in front of your car, for example. And uh, so it is important that we have enough stress to keep motivated, but not so much that we take our eye off the important thing. Thank you. Balance is always everything, isn't it? Um, up next, we've got David and Joe Johannesburg. Hi, David. Please go ahead. 
Uh, we've lost David. We now can go to Peter in Northcliffe. Hello, Peter. You are online. Uh, yes, good morning. Uh, first of all, I must uh, congratulate you on such an interesting program every week. Okay, thank you. Um, my question is, uh, <clears throat> uh, when you boil water to um, to kill off uh, bacteria to make it safe to drink, once the water has boiled, uh, how long before uh, that bacteria starts uh, uh, remultiplying? Um, um, basically, it's it's. Uh, I wanted to know from how long after boiling water would it uh, be safe to still drink? Hi, David. There's a range of things to consider here because when you take water out of, say, the ground or a river, it may not just be bacteria in there which are a threat to you. For instance, if you get water that's been in contaminated ground, it could have leached chemicals out of the ground which could harm you and no amount of boiling may remove those. There could also be viruses in the water, and viruses kill thousands of people every day because of waterborne illness. Um, They are a bit more similar to bacteria in terms of how they can be destroyed. Now, the reason that when we boil water, it seems to be quite effective as a way of disinfecting it and destroying the microorganisms is because when you raise the temperature of, of the water to 100 degrees, most of the life that we know about on Earth has enzymes and proteins and things which are not capable of operating at temperatures beyond about 60 degrees C. Once you raise the temperature beyond about 60 C, the proteins, which are the polymers that make important things inside living tissue, they undergo a process called denaturation. And this is where they bend and distort. It's rather like when you put a crisp packet or a yogurt pot in the oven and it melts and and bends and deforms and becomes useless. That's what happens to all the proteins in your cells at high temperature. So microorganisms, bacteria and viruses, their proteins denature and they cease to be able after that to cause disease in you. Now, that means the sample of water that you have boiled, assuming there are no other toxins and contaminants in there that are not broken down by heat, we'll assume they're not there. The only source now that uh, new infection can come into the water is if it comes in from outside. So if your source of water were sealed, then the bacteria and viruses wouldn't come back. If the water was open to the environment, then it could be recolonized by bugs in the environment. There are spores of fungi floating around all the time. There are bacteria bobbing around on the breeze. People are sniffing and coughing out viruses all the time. So if you had an open pan of water, then it would slowly accumulate more bacteria, fungal um, burden from the environment. Viruses won't grow in there, though, unless they have a cell to grow in. And so unless you put some of yourself in there, you can't grow human viruses in your boiled water. But uh, the the bacteria coming in from outside could certainly get back in there and begin to grow. Uh, If you keep the water sealed, it won't, though. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.